As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. This week's podcast is brought to you in part by Bill Taylor Enterprises. BTE is a manufacturing, design, and support company that specializes in high-performance automatic transmission assemblies and components for drag racing, off-road, marine, and street performance. Stay tuned to learn more about BTE's tune-up services. Is your bank account mad at your race car? Listen, this game that we play that we love, it's expensive. Entry fees, travel costs, attrition, motors, transmissions, you name it, it's expensive. And let's face it, it's not getting any cheaper. What if I told you that there are a variety of ways to both minimize and completely offset those expenses? What if I told you that there are a variety of streams from which to generate income within and around your racing? If that sounds like a pipe dream, I'm living proof that that is a limiting belief. Learn more in my new course called Make Your Racing Pay For Itself. You can find it at thisisbracketracing.com slash make it pay. Again, that's thisisbracketracing.com slash make it pay. All one word. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed. I'm Big Jed, Jared Pennington. He's cool hand Luke Bogacki. If you're a regular listener, thank you for your patronage. If you're new, you'll probably catch on soon enough. Our goal is to shed some light on the events, news, and issues in sportsman drag racing and the stars within it. Welcome or welcome back to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast, where we sometimes discuss Chat Dragon and Jim Rod Cap. I'm solo this week. Jed will be back next week, and we're going to do something a little bit different um, with today's episode. 
throughout the life of this podcast, as you longtime listeners will know, we've had incredible opportunity to sit down and have discussions with some really big names in our sport, like Dan Fletcher, Edmund Richardson, David Rampey, Sherman Adcock, Erica Enders. And those discussions, those interviews, they have been awesome. Jed and Mark and myself, we got together and we realized that there are awesome stories throughout sportsman drag racing. And they're not just limited to the names that we all know. So with that in mind, we've made a, a conscious effort to uncover some of those incredible stories from great racers with rich, rich perspective and really interesting backgrounds and experiences who may not necessarily be household names. Today's show is actually the first in that pursuit. It's a sit down with Scotty Bodmer. Scotty is a, uh, a racer. He's about my age, uh, early 40s, from Maryland. He works as a project manager for a uh, commercial drywall construction company. I believe it's called Copper Mine Applicators. Been racing his whole life, was introduced to it by his father. Scotty's currently racing a, a 2013 race tech dragster prepared for him by uh, Scotty Albrecht, as he'll discuss a little bit more in depth as we get into the episode. And um, Scotty races today mainly at Capital Raceway, travels around to some of the big money races along the East Coast. And Scotty's a really, really accomplished racer. Like he's got skins on the wall to the tune of 11 track championships. Uh, he's also ventured out onto the big dollar scene with success, highlighted by a $20,000 win uh, at the Atco Superbucks. Uh, he's also been a former Division I Race of Champions winner. Like he is, he's very accomplished on the racetrack. And that in and of itself is reason to come on the podcast with us. What drew me to Scotty and probably the reason that he's he's first in line to tell his story is his story is awesome in terms of he's been through a lot. He's just got this really rich, unique perspective on life and it exudes in everything that he does and everything that he talks about. Now, I should preface this by saying that Scotty's a member of This Is Bracket Racing Elite. Now, that's not a precursor for inclusion in this podcast, but for me, it's just a natural starting point, given our personal relationship, which has obviously been cultivated and strengthened significantly through our mutual involvement within the elite community. I've gotten to know Scotty and his story, and I know that it's rich. I know that's phenomenal. I know that it's worth sharing. So that is why Scotty's on the show today. Not just because he's a member of This Is Bracket Racing Elite, but because that's how I really got introduced to Scotty's story and just how special it is. And as you listen to this, uh, I think you'll agree that it is just that. Very special. So without further ado, we'll jump right into it. Uh, today's discussion with Scotty Bodmer. He's on fire! It's time for Who's Hot in Sportsman Drag Racing. Scotty, what's going on, man? What's happening, buddy? How are you? 
Doing good, doing good. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to come on with us. And this is a format for the podcast that we have been uh, looking at rolling out for quite some time. I had a few people in mind and I'm I'm really glad that you're the first one on deck because I know that you got a really cool story to share. You've got the skins on the wall, 11-time track champion. Like you, You've done it on a big level at the big dollar races. Plus, I think you've got a really unique story and a great way to articulate it. So I'm excited about this. Yeah, I am too, man. I, I really appreciate you uh, bringing me on today and uh, giving me the opportunity. I'm, I'm super uh, honored and uh, to be uh, like the beta test for this, I guess. And uh, and see where we go uh, moving forward. All right, so let's start at the beginning. What is your earliest racing memory? Like, how were you introduced to the sport? Okay, so my earliest racing memory, I was nine years old, and my dad took me to the track. Now, at that time, I had no knowledge previously that my dad had ever raced. He had raced back in the 70s in the modified production days, and then he quit for, I guess, 10 or 15 years. You know, had a family, all that jazz. Took me back at nine years old. Kind of went to the spectator side, didn't know anybody. Like, thought it was the dumbest thing I'd ever seen in my entire life. Like, at that time, I'm nine years old. Like, I still, you know, I'm like the dude going to Foot Locker getting the Air Jordans before Michael has them. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, think I'm going to be like basketball dude. And figured out yet, I'm going to be 5'2 and not very coordinated. So <laughs> that dream uh, quickly faltered. But yeah, that was my first earliest memory. I was never big and still am not like, a huge like mechanical guy, like not a big car guy, but went there, saw it as an opportunity to, to spend time with my dad. Uh, we didn't spend a ton of time together in my younger years. He, he wasn't into basketball or things that I was into. So I saw it as an opportunity to spend time with him. And then we went back a couple more times and, and my cousin, Dickie Bodmer, he, he was a big racer back in the 80s, and he still is today, but started hanging out with him a little bit and started to learn about bracket racing. And that's, that's really what got me. Not drag racing, not cars. It was the competition, the math, everything that was involved with bracket racing. So that's my earliest memory for that. And at what age was that hook kind of set? Because I think most kids, like you, even if you got interested in racing, like bracket racing itself tends to be a turnoff because it's complicated, but you sounds like you took to the, the mental side of it. Yeah, yeah, no, the, the math of it and like the competition of it was what drew me to it. And, you know, I, I was the kid that I probably had four or five guys that, that hung around my cousin that, you know, I would take their time slip every time they would come back from a run and I would keep my own log like my own law books and all that stuff for those guys. And, and through all that, I kind of learned, you know, the math. And, and I was like, hey, man, you don't have to be the fastest guy at the track to win. You don't, it's all about numbers. And it's like a high-speed chess match in a way. That individual, the fact that I wasn't relying on a team, so to speak. You know, I was, it was me and my car, basically. You know, or, or him and his car, you know, as I'm watching. So we just started going more and more. And uh my dad then got a car and we got back into it. And I spent a lot of nine, 10, 11 year old years telling him what he was doing wrong. And, you know, uh, <laughs> so that's how that kind of, kind of ended up. But, uh, but yeah, that, that, that's the thing that, that hooked me was that. And uh, I guess the first race that if I had to pick a race that was it was probably the division one bracket finals. I, I went to that for the first time. And just seeing, you know, the team cheering on that guy. And when you're on the starting line, you are the guy. That was like, 
on there. Yeah, there's similar fond memories of the bracket finals growing up, no doubt. So yeah, the introduction to the sport, and then your dad gets back into it. So you're going to the races with him. Mm-hmm. What was your first foray behind the wheel? <laughs> Junior dragsters, 13 years old. I had the uh, the pool start version, which kids nowadays are probably like, what is that? You know, uh, I think I've told you the story before, and my my buddies that listen to this will probably roll their eyes because I've told it a thousand times, but my dad got it for me. And then he was like, I hate this thing. Like I hate taking care of it. I hate having to get you out on the track. Like I want to worry about my stuff. You know? So I used to have to put a two by four in front of the tires who started my stuff, jump in the thing and get a gas to go over the two by four and out on the track I went. So that was my first kind of foray into, into driving. Dude, I was totally hooked, you know? Did you have a bunch of success in the junior dragster ranks or did that come later? No, 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 I did. I, I, out of, I guess I raced, you know, because back then wasn't nobody running past 16. That's a whole different story for another time with these kids running now until they're like 20. But, uh, but now I, I, I think I finished second the first year, which there was probably only like eight cars or something. And then uh, won the next two years, the track championship there. So, I never went to Indy, never went to any of that stuff because my dad was like, I'm not going out there and running, seeing these things, chainsaws, as he used to call them, run for four days, you know? So, yeah, that never got to do that deal. So, uh, that, that was my success. No, it's funny you talk about, like, the evolution of the junior program from the days that we did it because we're similar in age, you know, I mean, I remember the pull start stuff. And to your point, like, just the, the culture of it, it was, granted, you know, I mean, I guess I took junior drags racing seriously at the time. But it was means to an end. Like, it was something to do until I was old enough to drive a big car. You know, now it's, you have career junior dragster racers, right? Yeah, I, yeah, I totally wasn't into that. My sights were dead set on top ET, or actually at the time, footbrake racing. That was my, what was supposed to be my next step. And that's a whole other story. But, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it was a means to an end. And it was like, okay, I'm doing this until I get my license. And then I'm getting in a big car. Like, I think. The day after I got my license, I was on the track in a big car. So uh, I, I don't quite get the whole career junior thing now, but it is to each their own, I guess. It's exactly the term I was going to use, to each his own. I'm putting you on the spot a little bit. You shared a story with me from like early career of uh, driving a door car and, and uh, maybe a little lesson from your pop. Remind me where that fell things and, and how that went, because I, I like the story. That was, uh, yeah, that was my first weekend driving, you know, back. In the junior days, you know, 14 seconds, I could go down, bomb the brakes like crazy, and you know, whatever. Wasn't a big deal. So I get in a 67 Chevy Nova, runs like 14s in the quarter, or quarter mile racing back then. And uh, my dad's like, now look now, this, this thing's got power discs on it. This ain't the junior. Don't be going down there and bombing the brakes. Like, yeah, 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 dad, I got it. I got it. Sure enough, I go down there, bomb the brakes. That thing does a 180 on the track at the 1320. I hit my other guy, had it up on two wheels, came back, and I came back down the track the opposite way. <laughs> and I had to get off the short turn off. Needless to say, thank God there was a group of people around when I got back, because I think he killed me. But uh, <laughs> we, uh, I got back by with a, a stern look at the time, and, uh, you know, I told you so, look. So a lot of times with, with my old man, all he had to do was give me a look. There wasn't much more that needed to be said, you know. So uh, I learned quickly. Yeah, yeah. I guess 
it could have been much more painful, but that's got to be kind of traumatizing the first time <laughs> out, right? Get that lesson right out of the way. Well, well, the funny thing was, as soon as I did it, and I was like, oh my God, he's going to kill me. You're never going to let me back in the thing. And he's like, all right, get back up there. You know what not to do now. So you got to get back on the horse, so to speak. So That's a hell of a teacher. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. And I assume because... I don't know if you like the first time that I remember us interacting, we were introduced to each other through Troy Williams Jr. And he introduced me to you as the king of 75 and 80. So I assume that all of these stories were from that facility. Is that, is that accurate? The, major, the majority of them. Yeah. 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 That's, that's actually my uh, recollection as well was Florida uh, racing with Troy when he used to fly down there and drive for, I guess he was racing for Bloomfield then and, and Mike would let me drive stuff. I, I think this was before little Mikey even could drive. I think he was probably still in juniors, showing my age a little bit there. But, <laughs> but, but yeah, no, that's for sure. Yeah, no, I, I had a lot of success at that track. I think I won six or seven of my track championships at that track till it closed down in 2005. And that's where I grew up. I mean, that's, that's home. That'll always be home. I learned what to do and what not to do at that track. And probably that place kept me out of a ton of trouble in high school. Because I was there Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday, you know? Yep, I, that, that definitely resonates with me. And when you were talking about your, your father earlier, that resonated with me. I know that in our conversations, that's come up a lot because it's kind of a bond that we share. You'd mentioned earlier that getting into racing or back into racing on, on your father's, half, father's behalf, that you felt like that really kind of brought you together and cemented that relationship. What was that like as you started racing? Like, were you both competing? Was he more there with you? How, what did that progression look like? I guess when I got out of juniors, and like I said, originally I had my foray was supposed to be in the footprint. I was supposed to move to footprint. My dad at the time had a 78-mile bill, but he had a really bad back. He had had like three back surgeries, just couldn't get in and out of the car. Like, it was, it was just torture for him. So it ended up, to where the following season, like I turned 16 in October, so I raced like a month foot break, and then um, the following season, I ended up taking over the Malibu. So became a team, but us not competing. I think maybe in in later years, he kind of drove a couple times in a car. He could he could get in and out of a little easier, but we maybe competed against each other three times, you know, or something like that. So. Most of it was him as the backer slash finance guy and, and me as the pure driver. So that's, uh, that's kind of how that went. Yeah, my path was similar. It's in it, On our behalf, it was more of I, my dad just – maybe we didn't have the money to both race. I don't really know, but he just seemed to get so much joy out of watching me that that's kind of the, the way it progressed. And and to your point, like that, that – it's hard for me to imagine what my relationship with my dad would have been like had it not been for racing because that was the common ground always. Yeah. I, I'm not sure me and my dad really would have had one. Maybe later in life, unfortunately, you know, as we talk about our kind of parallel paths here a little bit, you know, we both lost our fathers sooner than, than we should have. But, you know, that was our thing. I mean, from, from March to November, God, 25 years. That's what we did. You know, that was the thing we talked about. That was the thing that kept us together out in the garage. I mean, he was my best friend, you know, when it, when it was all said and done. And, uh, 
and uh, you know, but at the same time, gosh, man, we would have some knockdown drag out sometimes at the track, you know, just, just competition was, I'm sure your dad was the same way. He saw so much in me, probably more than I ever saw, but he would never let me know, you know what I mean? And, and, and always worked hard to, to really get, get what he could out of me. And when I, when he thought I wasn't trying or he thought I was underachieving, he let me know about it. And of course, you know, my response, it was, you think you're better? Do it. Get in there. You know? So yeah, that, that turned into some, some fun, uh, fun stories from time to time. Yeah. Those, you're bringing back some memories there too. I definitely uh, have had some of those conversations myself. I'm sure a lot of people listening have experienced the, the pain and understand, you know, what it's like to go through the passing of a loved one, but specific to racing, like that was your thing together. What was it like after your father passed going racing without him? I got to tell you, I almost quit for multiple reasons. My father passed away one week before my wedding. So that was a, it was actually two days before Thanksgiving. We were getting married the following Friday. So that was like a shock in and of itself. In the process of all that, I was starting to build a new car. So I had to wait for that to happen. And then that following, I guess, actually, I guess it was a year past. My years are running together, but it was a three-year stretch where it was really weird. Built a new car. I fell through a ceiling, broke both my wrists. I had a newborn. Like, it was just a, a lot of stuff going on. The way racing did kind of take a backseat. And then I think <sighs> racing without him, because I, I'm sure you had a lot of the same, I don't want to say doubters, but kind of on the local level, like guys would say, well, I'd like to see what he did if it wasn't for his daddy. You know what I mean? And I think when I, when I came back and, and was doing it without him, I was in this pressing too hard. And, and when things weren't going, like I was trying to prove myself all over again. And uh, I think when there were times, I mean, I, I literally was driving home and be like, you know, this, this just ain't, me anymore and this just ain't you know whatever and my wife would look at me and be like i'm tired of hearing it like if you are this miserable sell it and i think that was kind of like my wake-up call like dude you ain't got it so bad you're getting to you know your dad wouldn't want you to quit you're able to do this you're able body you got you came back from falling through a ceiling like stop feeling sorry for yourself and just go out there and prove prove to everybody you can still do it so that kind of became my motivation afterwards. It's not the same, and, and I don't think it ever will be the same. I don't think it's something you ever get over. You just learn to live like it's a new normal in a way. So it's definitely different. But uh, Do you still feel that way now, or is that something that you've kind of worked through in terms of putting that added pressure on yourself? And I imagine that some of it, too, is not only the, the expectation to you know, prove the doubters wrong. Like some of it is still, I would assume, because it, it is for me, to live up to your father's expectations as well. Absolutely, one hundred percent. I feel like that's not just in racing. I feel like daily, like my goal is to be the man he wanted me to be. And you know, now if that translates to the racetrack, awesome. You know, and and believe me, I still have the, the competitive drive and the, and the edge that I always had. And that's why I'm still doing it because I do love it at the end of the day. And now couple that with the fact that my son loves it so much and loves going so much. Like, 
you know, that just gives me added, added incentive to go. Cause we do do it as a family and, you know, my wife goes and she used to race and didn't, I'm not sure we would all be as close if it wasn't for racing. You know, it's what we do as a family. So there's definitely, I think a lot of us, I think we all fall into the trap where, you know, it all becomes more, <clears throat> more like work in a way. And we forget it's supposed to be fun. You know, we get so caught up in the, in the grind of it all that, uh, that we forget at the end of the day, we're supposed to be enjoying this, you know? So uh, that's kind of why I'm still doing it. And yeah, I, I mean, obviously I still want to, I have high expectations for myself, but I also want to live up to the expectations he always had for me as well. Your relationship with your father for all of us is like one of a kind. And there's things in everyday life that I'm sure make you think of him every day. But specific to racing and that bond that you shared, like as you go through competition today, do you ever take like a more helicopter view and allow yourself to think about how racing shaped that relationship and, and maybe impact your, your memories of your father? Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's just, those are my fondest memory with my father it is racing. And it's, you know, maybe that's terrible to say in a way <laughs> that, that racing had that big of an effect on our relationship. But I know for a fact that, you know, when my father passed away, I had zero regrets. There's nothing I would have said, man, I wish, I mean, obviously I wish you would have had more time, but there's nothing that we didn't do together. There's, you know, I spent more time with my father probably than 90% of the people out there because we went racing every single weekend. People that live far away from their parents may not have that luxury, you know? So I know that as hard, as hard as it was to lose him, like I got the most out of that relationship that I possibly could. And, and to this day, I don't, I don't sit back and go, well, what if I should have done? No, I don't have any of that because we did it all. So, but yeah, overall, it's, it's, it's nothing but fond memories there. That's where it's at. That's good stuff. All right. So to date, you've been through some, uh, some big moments behind the wheel. If you had to, to rank them, like what's the biggest moment of your racing career to this point? Well, obviously, we talked about the championships, and they're always fun, but they're more of a long, you know, uh, kind of like a, they're the reward for a great season, so to speak. As far as, like, individual moments, I still probably will go back, and again, this goes back to my dad, winning the Division One race of champions, even though monetarily it was peanuts, like, it was the coolest thing ever. You know, like, in Division One, you know, you actually have the number one on your car you know, as opposed to just running your regular number. So, man, when you're rolling to the lanes with a number one in your car and you're running other number ones and, you know, especially growing up, that was, like, the coolest thing. Like, I was always like, oh, man, who's in the race of champions this year? Like, I couldn't wait to see it, you know. So, and because it was such a big deal to my dad at the time because, you know, unfortunately he passed away before all these monster money things came out. That was always the biggest deal to him. Bigger than my... My 20K win at ACO, which probably races um, ranks second because I it did run my a really good friend Scotty Albrecht in the final. And, you know, now it's ironically, Scotty, like without him, I wouldn't have a racing operation because he sets up everything on my cars, builds my motor, like he is the man. So that, that's kind of ironic. So those two are probably the most special individual memories. And then this past year, getting to the split at the 500K, like, 
just being a part of that discussion, it, that was cool. You know, that, that's hard to stop. Let's backtrack to that Race of Champions win. Timeline that for me. What was the year? Oh, man, you're dating me again. Uh, 1999. 99. Okay, so you were, you were a pup. I was 20 years old. It was actually on my birthday. Matter of fact, that's another reason why I remember it so well. Oh, wow. So, and you were yeah. in a dragster, right? Or were you the mother? Yeah. Now I was in a 97 Fabrications Hardtail. Still doing dry hops back in those days. Sweet. What, uh, what facility was the Bracken Finals at? That year it was at US 13. Uh, that's Del Mar? Yeah, Del Mar. Yeah. Forever and ever, like growing up, it was always at Maple Grove. And I guess in that facility still to this day is like as a mystique to it for me. But at that time is when they started moving it around, I think, between Maple Grove, Cecil, and Del Mar. So, yeah. And then, um, okay, so let's pull the pin then on Fall Fling because that's, that's recent. That's just a couple of months ago. You're going rounds. You're in deep for what, if not be, like obviously one of the top two richest paying races ever. Take me through that moment. Like you're part of the split conversation, the thoughts running through your mind. Like that's something that a lot of us never achieve. Like what was that day like? The day overall was was just, it was cool to be a part of it. Just that first round was probably the most nerve-wracking first round I can remember. But after that, I mean, it was, I, I, I say after that because I didn't drive that great. I think I was perfect first round and I was like three total second round. And then I was like high teen, high teen, and then the wheels kind of came off. It was like I just I just wasn't driving it. And I almost felt like I was in quicksand a little bit. Like, you know, I kept pushing harder and pushing harder and it was getting worse and worse kind of thing. So, but I was getting by with it. Like I wasn't, you know, and, you know, just being a part of the split, you know, when Pete comes up and it, it was weird. At like 20, we were all sitting there and everybody's getting in their cars. And I'm like, okay, I guess we're not talking money. And then everybody gets out of their cars. And then, you know, and then for Pete to come up and be like, all right, boys, there's 583,000 or something like that in the kitty. That's like a, wow, this is a pretty cool moment kind of thing. You know, like, I don't know that I'll be here again. You know what I mean? And, and I think at the time, we kind of had a conversation and a couple of our buddies about, you know, hey, I'm not driving that great. And, and you were just like, doesn't matter what you did to this point, just, you know, whatever you do moving forward. And, and like you said, also said to me, you said, you know, how many times do we go out and drive great and have nothing to share for it? So just take the, take the wind lights as they come. So yeah, that for me, actual driving performance, I wasn't super happy with. The end result, I was fairly happy with. <laughs> you know, to, <laughs> to make the split at that race is, is not an easy thing to do. No doubt. And to your point, I think from the outside, it's easy to see everybody that is still in late in a race like that and just put them completely on a pedestal. And go, Man, that, that was unbelievable. I'm, I'm not capable of something like that. And then you yourself say, and if you took each of the, the late competitors in any race like that and pulled them, it might be 10% to be like, yeah, I just drove out of my mind. The rest is just like it just happened to be to fall into place that day. Well, yeah, and I mean, I think you mentioned it a couple weeks ago, and you might have mentioned it in the recap to that race that Jason Lynch or somebody said to you, like, they're about to find out what they're what they're racing for. And I got to be completely honest with you, it, it totally came into my mind. Like the enormity of the situation did weigh on me, and, I, and I'm not ashamed to admit that. And 
Now, it's a way, now I look at it as a learning experience and something that Lord will when I get maybe in that situation again, I'll, I'll be able to draw from this experience again and, and know, look, you've already been here, you know, and just kind of maybe it won't be so feel so big. But, you know, to, to pull around the corner and have that mass of humanity in a way standing there, you know, it was a cool moment and, and it's something I won't soon forget. That's for sure. Yeah. Maybe with experience that tends to get easier and it's easier to compartmentalize. But to your point, there's a lot to compartmentalize. I mean, you just think the money aspect. I mean, if things go well over the course of the next, what, two hours at that point, most of us could stand to win more money than we make in like two years. You know, I mean, most of us could pay off our house or, you know, buy a new house, whatever the case may be. And then to your point, just being such a, a student of the history of the game, you know what I mean? To realize the relevance of having success in an event like that and to pull through, not only pull through this mass of humanity, but if it's hard not to take the time to look at the faces and more often than not, you catch a face or two that are like people that I, I know I have, like I, that I've looked up to my entire racing career and they're sitting here watching me try to, you know I mean? That's it. It's a big deal. And it's just difficult to explain the emotions and the thought process of it until you're in it. Yeah, I mean, and to your point, I mean, the guy putting on the race, Peter Beyond it, like, to me growing up in the Northeast, and, and probably to, I mean, like, I, your conversation in the week, he's one or one A, like, he is the man. And to have that guy standing there looking at you, talking about a split for whatever, I mean, that, it's almost like a surreal moment. And, and Pete's a great guy, and, you know, we've become friendly over the years, but, uh, yeah, growing up as a kid, man, he was pretty young then, too, but, you know, he was the man. You know, when he came down from English Town or whatever, and he was he was bad dude. So still it's and uh, yeah, that, it was just a, a real surreal experience to be a part of, and and uh, you know, hopefully something I get to do again someday on a, on a big stage. Circling back, it's obvious and listening to you that that racing and family have been intertwined your whole life. It started with your dad. Your wife is a racer. Had, had, do you guys? I assume you guys met through racing. Yeah, yeah, we did. Yeah. And now, uh, so your son is just all about it. Uh, how old is your son now? He's six. You know, he's getting ready to turn seven in December. But yeah, he uh, he doesn't understand it much, but you know, he he loves being at the track. So yeah, yeah, no question. How entertaining is the story of uh, of meeting your wife? I, I felt like I stopped you from going down that road. Uh, no, I mean it's it's just we we kind of grew up. She's a little bit younger than me, but we we uh, raced at the same track together for years and years and years, and, and you know. Uh, kind of family, you know, kind of thing. And it's just, it's funny how we all meet, you know, I have so many friends who met their spouse through racing and, and like yourself and, you know, everything else. It's just funny how, how life works out sometimes. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, we've, we've known each other for a long time and, and uh, I guess, you know, things are meant to be and that's just how it worked out. Now you said that there was a, an off period there. Your, your father passed away, you got married guys had your son like what was do you remember the the introduction of your son to our sport yeah i mean he was probably six months to a year old you know like it's like right around that time and uh i mean he's been going forever and ever but uh but yeah so i mean he, we, we kind of took a break afterwards i guess maybe two two and a half as i'm sure you'll bring up my son has autism he's on the autism spectrum and at that time we were we were trying to figure out what was going on. We knew he was a little bit developmentally delayed. Uh, he was a preemie. And uh, so we were going through the process of trying to figure out some things with him. And, and uh, racing obviously kind of took a backseat at that time. So 
that was kind of where I kind of hit a lull, I guess, in the racing, so to speak, because obviously bigger things uh, took over at that time. For a listener like myself that's never gone through that, like, what is that process like? Because, I mean, at some point you've got regular child development and you realize that there's a fluctuation. Like, how was that learning the process and, and being introduced to autism in general and accepting the fact that your son has it? I don't think it's anything you ever stop learning because we're still learning. I think at the time he was kind of meeting his goals up until probably a year and a half. And when we saw what was a word or two here or there kind of stop or completely like almost regression in a way, there wasn't any advancement in verbiage, so to speak. So that was probably the number one issue there was a little bit of eye contact issues that that's a kind of a warning sign so there's just little little things that kind of tipped us off in a way and um i actually started doing some investigating you know it's funny how it works out sometimes man like sometimes you just got to go with your gut and like i just felt like there's something going on here like there's something you know whatever so we had the county come out and assess him early on and, and early on they thought it was what's called speech apraxia, which is like a, just a delayed speech deal. We've had him in speech or some kind of special therapy since he was two. So after going through that for about a year, um, maybe, maybe not quite a year, we had put him in another program that didn't work out real great for him. But what came of it was, and God bless the people that have this conversation was, you know, the lady kind of looked at us and said, have you ever had him tested for autism? And I kind of looked at her because I, 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 again, I kind of had some suspicions at, at the time. And I said, no, but we probably should. There's actually a thing on Autism Speaks site, which whatever you think about that, that organization or whatever, I know some, some people in the autism community are not fond of it. There is something called an M-Chat and it's a modified checklist that you can kind of go through and you answer a few questions and, and at the end of it, it kind of gives you the, the level of possibility, I guess, so to speak. And Tyler only came out as moderate, but there was enough there that between his, his teachers and his therapists and everything else that, that we, we thought it was a good idea to, to, to get him checked out. And uh, so we took him to Children's um, after a million worksheets and evaluations and, and everything of that nature. And, and they came back and said, yeah, that he, uh, he met the criteria for autism spectrum disorder, which is now a broad umbrella. It's not, you know, it, it kind of encompasses Asperger's disease and, and uh, a few other developmental disabilities. But uh, it's a wide spectrum. You know, they, they say, you know, you met one person with autism, you met one person with autism because everybody's uh, symptoms and, and disabilities or level of disability, I should say, is different. And it was, I ain't gonna lie, that was a hard pill. That was a hard thing to swallow. At the end of the day, he doesn't know. He's happy being him. And it's it, it, really the stigma coming back more to the parents, you know, I think, and having to deal with that label, so to speak, because nobody wants their kid to have a label. And I understand that. But at the same time, I also know people that probably have some kids that have some some possible disabilities. and. They're trying to either sweep it under the rug. And, and I know denial is a, a powerful thing, but at the end of the day, you're only hurting the kid. 
it's a hard thing to grasp and it's something we work through every day and it's it's work but you know it's something that you got to do and, and what's best for him so tyler today is in first grade he's in the equivalent of first grade sure yeah. That's what I. That's where I was going. Like, what is his average day? How is it his typical day? How is it different from the quote unquote average six year old? Yeah. Well, I mean, he, he gets on a, a special needs bus uh, that has an aide, but he does go to a regular public school. Uh, thankfully, we live in, in Montgomery County, Maryland, and they have really good programs here for everything that this county may lack in certain areas and, and have some dumb rules. Uh, they have some some very good programs for, for special needs children. And um, yeah, the program he's in is called LFI, which is Learning for Independence. And what they do is they, they teach the curriculum, but they teach it in like a, I guess a combined setting, so to speak. They do a lot of, they do a lot of life skill uh, things. They, they go to, to the post office and learn how to mail a letter. They go to the store because a lot of a lot of kids, I mean, we're very, very fortunate. Our our child, you know, he loves going to the store. He's great out in public. I mean, hell, we even went with really good friends of ours, uh, Bobby and Chelsea Spence, to Disney. And and I thought that was gonna be a disaster and it, and it worked out. But you know, so our we're very blessed in, with the way he is able to cope with some of the disabilities that he has. But the LFI program, I mean, you tour some of these programs, man, and I don't know if with Gary, if you've ever been to like his classroom setting or anything like that. And it, it's different than when I remember being a kid. Like they, they demand a lot of these little guys in kindergarten. I mean, when I went to kindergarten, dude, it was playtime. And, uh, you know, now it's a, it's like a whole thing where you got to like actually sit there and whatever. And Tyler's not, that's not his bag. So it, it, this is a good deal because there's a lot of it's small group settings. There's one teacher, two paraeducators in a classroom of like nine to 12. So there's a lot of small group, there's a lot of centers, there's, he also gets OT and speech within that. So yeah, it's a, it's a really cool program. And, and the best part about it is the kid loves school. So we don't have to fight him to go to school. And uh, you know, he, he seems to be progressing, which is all we can ask for. You said something really poignant earlier that uh, I would imagine has to be the case that this the stigma really isn't for the kid, it's for the parents. What what was the hardest part for you and your wife? What is the hardest part? Probably telling our families. I gotta give my wife credit, man. You know, she she's the kind of the Susie Sunshine of, of us too. Like, you know, we're gonna figure it out. We're gonna get through it. We're gonna whatever. And and I'm always the you know, the, the more realistic guy, I guess, in some ways and in, in some ways to my to my detriment maybe. But that was the hardest part, telling our, our families and, and also to this day, like getting them to understand. That's one thing that a lot of his, lot of his therapists tell us is, you know, you got to get into his world. He's a very black and white kid, which in some ways I envy the way he sees the world. He doesn't know labels. He doesn't know jealousy or greed. He knows symbols like if you love him, he loves you. He doesn't care if you're grandma, granddad, whatever. He knows you are who you are and you love him and he loves you back. Like you treat him well, he's going to treat you back, but well back. He doesn't care that little Johnny down the street got a new four wheeler. Like he only cares about what makes him happy. And like, I, I think I shared a post and for the people that are friends with me on Facebook, I, I post a lot about it because it, it is kind of therapeutic for us in a way. And the, and the people that choose to keep it private, you know, that's, that's definitely their prerogative and, and more power to them. We choose to be more open and, 
because it's therapeutic for us. It, it raises awareness. It kind of gives people an insight to what we have going on. And, uh, and also, if it could help somebody. I mean, it's one in 59 kids is the, is the statistics right now. And that's crazy to think. And it's four, more, it's four times more prevalent in boys than girls. So I think that number for boys is even lower. It's like one in 30-something. So, but going back to, you know, like for him, like he doesn't want for anything. Like we, at Christmas, we have to beg him to open things. Like his favorite thing last Christmas was Reese peanut butter cups. You know what I mean? Like say he's like, he's like the simplest kid in the world, but like he's so happy. He's so easy. And, uh, and I just love him to death. And he's, he's the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Circling back to uh, racing, because I mean, I can attest like you and your wife, Jessica, came up around racing and when we when we had Gary it changes things like obviously in life but specific to racing as well and I can't imagine like speak to that that change in terms of not only like the perspective shift of what racing even means in the big picture but just fundamentally what it looks like at the racetrack when you have to take care of another human being much less a human being that has special needs yeah, man, I, I, you know, I give my wife all the credit in the world for that. She, she does handle it for the, for the majority of it. When I'm at the track, you know, she knows when, when I kind of need to focus on something to get him kind of away, in a way, um, in those times. But at the same time, it did change things in that I'm not any less hungry when I'm on the track or in the staging lanes or, or kind of in that moment. But when I'm coming back to return rate, if I get my butt beat from being six dead three, guess what? When I get back to the trailer, he don't care. All he knows is, hey, daddy went down the track, yay, and let's go for a golf cart ride. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it maybe made things for me like able to let things go a little a little quicker and just kind of let me process it. I, I kind of give myself a clock now. I have till I get back to the trailer. When I get back to the trailer, I'm not on the racetrack anymore. I'm a dad. So let me go be dad. That's kind of how that, that kind of changed things. So I, I don't let losses on the racetrack affect me nearly like they used to. Do you use like a, a threshold to help you with that? Like the helmet comes off and I'm dad again? Or how do you compartmentalize that, you know? You know, I don't know. <laughs> it depends on what track we're at. Normally, by the time I get my time ticket, I got maybe a minute to get back to the trailer. And I'll analyze it. But as soon as I see him, because he always wants to wait for me at the back of the trailer, like he wants to see dad pull in. When that happens, like you see his face and he's happy. Like, how can I be mad? You know what I mean? Like he doesn't know what just went on and he doesn't care that, like I said, daddy was six, take three and got beat. Like he don't care. Like, but I'm still daddy and I, he still loves me. So that's all that matters in that moment, you know? I love the uh, the perspective. I've always admired that about you. What and I don't. This is a difficult question to answer. I know, but I'm curious. Like, how do you do you find the balance between parenting, family, and life in general, work, and racing, and and make it all seemingly mesh as well as you do? Smoke and mirrors, buddy. Smoke and mirrors. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> I'm blessed to have a great family great friends who, who understand him and, and his fight. Uh, Don't judge him for, for who he is. They love him like, like they're, uh, like he's their own. I'm also blessed, uh, you know, like I said, with my wife who 
to uh, he definitely you know takes care of a lot of things on that end with lining up you know therapy sessions and and things of that nature and it was there's a lot of that trust me but as far as like turning it back to the racing thing like i do it when they go to bed like after he goes to bed i that's when i work on the car that's when i you know try to i mean not granted if it's a, a big thing if it's a motor swap or something like that effect i may have to take a day or two and go to new jersey go to albrecht's and, and he's helping me out with it all but uh I'm lucky the company I work for here at Coppermine Applicators, my boss, Bob Perry, like he's super understanding. He's the coolest boss I could ever ask for. Gives me time off when I need it. Lets me leave early with therapy sessions and things. So it, it I guess to, in a long winded way to answer your question, I balance it because I have support from others and without others being as accommodating as they are and as supportive as they are, I don't know that I can do it because at the end of the day, he's got to come first. And, um, you know, the fact that I'm still able to, to do the racing thing on top of it is, uh, is a blessing. No doubt. I want to circle this back around a little bit because as I said earlier, you know, we have a, a prior relationship goes back a long way, but we've definitely gotten to know each other a lot better in recent years through This Is Bracket Racing Elite. And I'm curious, like I said in the introduction, that, that the starting point for this, for me, it was easier to, uh, to know or to, to identify people like yourselves that have great stories to share based upon those relationships that we've cultivated within Elite. But specific to you, like, you came to us, you've been a member of Elite now for a few years, like you came to us with multiple track championships, you know, I mean, you had a heck of a racing resume. I'm curious what prompted you to even join a, a site like that to begin with. Um, I think it's a multitude of things. I think, you know, with today's racing, uh, you know, save for a few people who just get on hot streaks, we don't win like we used to. I mean, the racing is so tight and, you know, we're, we're trying to find any advantage we possibly can. You know, we're talking about tens of thousands of seconds here. And whether that's, you know, in the practice tree a couple more times or, or you know, having a training in front of you that, you know, at least it's in front of you. The, the accelerator program that you guys have introduced, like that, that's a challenge that, that makes you do the work. You know, all the tools are there on the site, but you get out what you put in. I think the great thing about Elite is, is there's something there for everybody. I think that if you're, newer to the sport or, or what you would call maybe a little bit of a novice, you can learn so much on that site that might be foreign to you. For me, you know, I'm not reinventing the wheel here. Like I know a lot of the, the strategies. I know, you know, all of the, the gameplay, but one of the things I've probably got the most out of elite since I've been a member is like the mechanical side of things. Like I'm not a very mechanically inclined guy, but you know, I've learned a lot from that. And then, like I said, you know, just the fact that the, that the, kind of hold you accountable like yes it, it, in a way it's kind of like a gym membership you get out what you put in you can't buy a gym membership and all of a sudden lose, lose weight like it don't work that way like you ain't gonna get a membership to elite and all of a sudden become a great racer like that ain't how it works but all the tools are there i mean i'm in no way you know i equate our sport a lot to golf yes right? okay the best golfers in the world still have swing coaches right they still get the best athletes in the world that play football. They still have coaches. They still have whatever. 
they know everything there is to know about their sport. But that doesn't mean they don't need to fine-tune things. That doesn't mean that, you know, with the league, you got access to three world champions and their perspective on things, as well as, you know, 400-some other members. Like, there's something to be learned from that. And for anybody out there that thinks that they can't learn anything more, like, I just don't believe in that. Like, I think you can learn something every day, and you can always get better. So that that's kind of what drew me to it. Couldn't say it better. I know we're embarking on the uh, the off season here, but uh, what does what does 2020 and beyond look like uh, specific to the Scotty Bodmer Racing Operations? The Scotty Bodmer Racing Operation. Let me see. Um, undecided, I guess, is is a good word to put it. Um, I race at, at Capital here in Maryland 95% of the time uh, when I'm not chasing some big money stuff. Um, and there's some rumors. I, I don't know what's going on there. I haven't heard a definitive thing about what's happening in place. Uh, hopefully it's there next year, and hopefully we can, uh, you know, if that's the case, then I'll be back uh, back down there hitting it hard. If not, i got some decisions to make. So, How uh, close is Capital to you? It's about an hour. It's about an hour, so. I'm I'm pretty fortunate. I probably got four or five tracks within two five two and a half hours of it. So um, pretty fortunate with that. Unfortunately, like MIR and oh, I'll always call it MIR, uh, MDIR now in Bud's Creek. Like they don't have a big bracket program. Uh, Mason Dixon up in Hagerstown's a great facility, great people, not a lot of cars. So it's kind of like the the return on my investment thing. Like how can I make that work? Because um, you know now have to look at it that way so there's some things in flux I, I toyed with maybe putting a thing on gas and doing a little super comp stuff but then there's so much travel involved with that with not a lot of return so we'll see uh you know i still like would like to hit a lot obviously some of their races uh with the spring fling brand um you know as there's so many opportunities now uh you know sfg no limit you know everybody there's there's so much around and i got to do it within the confines of when i can make it all work with with family and, and work and everything else. I, I don't know. I see some of these guys go to like every SFG race and I'm like, what do you do? <laughs> like, what do you do for a living? Cause I, I want, I want to know. Yeah. Right. How do we manage all of that? Thank you for your time and your, your openness in, uh, in sharing so many different facets of your story. I, I hope that our listeners enjoy it as much as I have, but if, and, and I know that you're a fairly regular listener to the podcast, so you may have a, bit of an idea what was coming but i can't just let you off the hook i've got, I've got some rapid fire for you, you up for some rapid fire yeah absolutely great all right you may have answered this earlier but i always like to start off with a racing question because it's a nice segue but uh, uh like lifetime favorite racer to watch do their thing peter beyond hands down how many keys on your key ring like what, what's the quote you can judge a man's power by the keys on his key ring or something i don't know if there's anything to that how many keys which one? <laughs> See, I have the same problem. I have multiple yeah. key rings, right? The, the motorhome, the, the daily driver, what do you got? Uh, uh, right now, just looking at it real quick, I probably got, I'm going to say 10. Okay, and then how many key rings? Five, I guess. Okay. I got like the shop key ring, the motorhome. <laughs> I mean, they got key rings everywhere. <laughs> Not the janitor. It's got them all hanging off the belt, right? I, I was going to say, none of them are hanging from my belt now. I, I can't pull that look off. <laughs> <laughs> biggest pet peeve could be racing related or not incompetence okay i like that i know you're you're uh you're a bit of a health nut so i don't even know if this this 
uh, applies, but you mentioned uh, Tyler and Reese's Cups earlier. So M&M's, Reese's Cups, Butterfinger, which one are you picking? Oh, Reese's Cups all day long. <laughs> uh, and you know I couldn't let you go without a Redskins question. I know it's a rough year, but uh, when will your beloved Skins return to the playoffs? When they fire Bruce Allen, maybe. <laughs> Dan Snyder's not going anywhere, unfortunately. For anybody that ever makes that comment on Facebook that fire the owner, the owner isn't going anywhere, just just to let you know. The guy's like 50 years old. He ain't dying anytime soon, uh, you know, unless something happens. But, uh, but yeah, no, it, it's – luckily, I mean, I'm not – the sad part is, dude, I'm a, I'm a Redskins and Orioles fan, and they have had about the worst two seasons – ever but for the dc area we've had the caps and the nats uh now just won the world series so that that was cool i don't hate the nats um not like i do the ravens because i hate the ravens but uh but yeah that, that was cool to see but but for my redskins i'm probably just gonna have to stick there going back to the glory years with joe gibbs and and watch replays of that 1991 super bowl i guess <laughs> where's doug williams when you need him right he actually works for the team. That's the sad part. Oh, sorry. Okay. I need to drum that back up. As I say, you have some good memories. It's just like from when we were kids. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's God, Riggins and my man going way back. But yeah, the futility in that, in that organization is, uh, defies logic, especially in a league that uh, is meant for, you know, parody and uh, for them to be as bad as they have for as long as they have is, you got to work hard to be that bad. <laughs> uh, well, I didn't mean to end on such a downer. Uh, Scotty, once again, man, thank you for taking the time to, uh, to join us and for sharing your story. I appreciate you being here, bud. Absolutely, buddy. I appreciate it anytime. Thanks. I want to thank everybody for tuning in to make sure that you're the first to know when next week's episode is available subscribe and you can do that on google play you can do that on itunes you can do that wherever you are accessing our show today just subscribe that way that you know that you have got the latest edition of the podcast you'll be the first to know and do us a favor tell your friends about the podcast get your track involved by broadcasting portions of the sportsman drag racing podcast over the pa on race day Reasons to use BTE tune-up services. Number one, quick turnaround time. You won't be out of commission for half the season while you're waiting on your parts. Number two, unparalleled customer service and responsive communication. Reason number three, all brands of parts are accepted. It's not like they just work on BTE parts. Number four, BTE offers freight shipping discounts. They are located in the shipping capital of the United States near Memphis, Tennessee. And number five, reason to use BTE tune-up services. Quality work from knowledgeable technicians helps your system achieve peak performance. Let's take just a minute to discuss motorsports insurance, specifically Larice motorsports insurance. If you're anything like me, you know of someone, uh, whether it's a friend, someone within your racing family that has lost everything, whether that be through everything racing related, whether that be via fire or theft, highway accident, on-track accident. And if you're anything like me, you've also realized that you have a significant portion of your net worth 
tied up in your racing equipment. Maybe more than we would like to admit, right? This is, after all, our passion, and it can become a bit of a money pit. What you may not know is that there are options to insure your racing equipment, race cars, trailers, support equipment, both on the track and off, and that doing so is not as costly as you might expect. To do that for me personally, I chose Larice Motorsports Insurance. They're a great company offering an excellent product and they stand behind it. Now, I've been so impressed with Larice and their commitment to excellence in this regard that we've partnered with them through thisisbracketracing.com. Our own team member, Ashley Thompson, is a licensed broker for Larice Motorsports Insurance. If this is something that you would entertain, that you would like to know more about and or get a quote for your particular op- application, contact us. Go to thisisbracketracing.com slash get a quote and Ashley will get back in touch with you. Again, that is thisisbracketracing.com slash get a quote. Banging on the door, bump, bump, bump until I get it in. Attitude like I am already winning in. Foot breaking in anything. Bottom ball before a 10. I'm rolling in the cutty switch and be like Jerry Pennington. Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss, or at least reference, This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer. Led by knowledgeable professionals, Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is at each event, there are a hundred plus entries. There's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th. <laughs> 